Uh, well, good morning, everyone. If this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, my name is Randy, and I'm privileged to be the lead minister here at Windsor Road Christian Church. We're just delighted uh, that you're here today, and as Hannah mentioned earlier, we're going to start a new series. Um, and, well, let's just jump right into it. I've got two passages of Scripture that I want us to uh, consider this morning. The first is a series overview, and then the second is uh, our particular subject for today. And um, I'd like for you to help me with the reading of this first passage that summarizes uh, uh, this series called Think. It's from Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Uh, let's just read this together as a congregation on three. One, two, three. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Let's read that last verse again. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. This is God's word. So this series, Think, is really about helping us think and then speak and then act more and more like Christ, where our minds are set above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And that begins in our hearts, that begins in our minds and how we think. And thinking is important to our university community. In our Champaign-Urbana University community, uh, 96% of adults age 25 and up have high school degrees. Half of us have undergraduate degrees. A one in five have graduate degrees. And 8% of us have doctorates. So we're smart. We're intelligent. We're educated. But can we think... Can we think? Are we able to think critically? Think Christianly. Think with the mind of Christ. So I begin this morning with a thinking question. One of the traits of good thinking is the ability to ask good questions. And I want to start our series with a question that I think every Christ follower will eventually ask. It's a question that probably you have asked in your faith journey. It's a question that you've asked in your heart, but it may not have come out of your mouth to date because you don't think you have permission to ask this question. And so you come to church, and you might even take in a missions trip or attend a small group, and all the while these experiences are happening, you're asking this question that's going on in your heart, but you're not going to vocalize it because you're concerned about what people may think, or what God may think, or what the pastor may think. And here's the question. Where's the payoff? Where's the payoff? Does it truly pay to serve God? Well, what's the benefit of knowing and serving and loving God? Where's the payoff? 
And I want to begin with a story about someone who dared to ask that question. And it's a story that's told in this second passage of Scripture that I want us to see today. It's in the Old Testament, book of Psalms, chapter 73. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 73. You'll find that on page 485 of your church Bibles. And I want you to listen for this question as I'm reading to you these verses from Psalm 73 in its entirety. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you have set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is, my, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. It's God's word. Do you hear the question? 
God, where, where's the payoff? This psalm tells a story of someone who almost gave up on God. I mean, he was very close to abandoning faith, throwing out anything that had to do with God. And so if you've ever asked this question, if you've ever felt this way, you're not alone. You're not the first, you won't be the last. In fact, someone has already voiced the question that you've been afraid to ask all along. And that someone is in the Bible. That someone is the writer of Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Who was Asaph? Um, Asaph was a Levite. He, uh, according to uh, 1 Chronicles 16, was the chief minister of worship in the tabernacle under King David. And we have several psalms uh, attributed to him. Uh, Psalm 50 is attributed to Asaph. And then Psalm 73 begins a set, a, a playlist of psalms. Psalm 73 to 83 are attributed to Asaph, this, this chief minister of worship in David's tabernacle. Whether he was speaking of himself or another person, here it is. Here's his story. And so what I want us to do this morning is just walk through this psalm, uh, and we're going to learn the big idea is right up front. Asaph front loads his big idea at, at the get-go of this psalm. And, uh, and then we're going to learn about the faith journey that he took and then how that applies to us today. So let's just get to the big idea, which is uh, in Psalm 73, verses 1 and 2. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. Here's the big idea. God is good all the time, and I nearly missed it. God is good. He's good all the time, and I nearly missed it. I almost missed it. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure we learned in our Beatitudes series that the word pure, yes, it involves moral purity. It's not less than that, but it's a whole lot more than that because the word pure has to do with undiluted or undivided or single-minded. So God is good to those who have undiluted, undivided, single-minded hearts, to those whose hearts have a laser-like focus to see that God is good. He's always been good. He'll always be good. God is good all the time, and I almost missed it, Asaph says. That's the big idea. Now, Asaph tells us a story about what happened to him that led him to this front-loaded big idea. He tells about a perilous journey, one in which he almost fell from his faith. And why? Verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. That is, you know, I saw my life and then I saw the lives of those who could care less about God. And their lives looked pretty good. Their lives looked pretty abundant. Their lives looked comfortable. They're not hurting. They're pretty. They're pretty people. They've no pain. They're not in trouble. And they know it. And they brag about it. They, they, they're without remorse. And if they want something, they just take it. 
That's what's going on in verses 5 and 6 and 7 and 8. And they scoff and they mouth off. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens. And then what a word picture. Their tongue struts through the earth. And I really think verse 10 is uh, better understood when you look at the footnote. I've got a footnote in uh, my Bible, and I think yours does too, if you've got the church Bible there uh, at the bottom a better translation of verse 10 would be this. The waters of a full cup are drained by them. Yeah, that makes better sense, doesn't it? The waters of a full drained by them. You know what I think about that? When I think about that phrase, I think about, uh, you remember Daniel Plainview in the, that movie, There Will Be Blood? Daniel Plainview, that horribly wicked character played brilliantly by Daniel Day-Lewis, right? And that that memorable scene at the end of the movie, I drink your milkshake. I drain your milkshake. I have a straw, Eli, you little boy. I'm going to have it all over. I drink it up. I drink your milkshake. You should watch more movies. But that's this, you know? And then they ridicule all things through that God doesn't know everything. Verse 11, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? You can't see what's going on. See, and Asaph sees this and sees their lifestyle and what it got them. And, and, then, and then, then he looks at his life and what it's getting him. And, and you know, who has not pushed the pause button and asked, what is wrong with this picture? And in verse 13 is just blunt. He says, it ain't worth it. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. I've been wasting my time. I've been wasting my life. I, I, I want to do what I want to do. Living for God isn't worth it. It's too much trouble. And, and by the time we get to verse 21, he's just flat angry, right? And my soul was embittered. Uh, one commentator translates first. 21 this way, my heart was as sour as vinegar. Anybody ever? Anybody felt that? Anybody here ever been that angry at God? Someone once told their minister, I can't believe in a God who would let my baby die. Now that's a lot of things, but that's not atheism. That's anger, raw, honest anger. Because you can't be angry at someone you're sure doesn't exist. And what you may think is intellectual doubt is really just rage, rage at God, anger at God. And it's not limited to unbelievers. See, Asaph is writing this psalm. He's the chief minister of worship at the tabernacle. He's a religious leader. I resonate with Psalm 73. I resonate with the raw honesty that Asaph shares. He does not hesitate to tell the truth 
on himself. And he doesn't give the impression that faith is always lived on the mountaintop and where we just, we just kind of you know, you know, skip from one spiritual high to another. And you get the impression here that Asaph would not tolerate, you know, cheesy churchy cliches. You know, God's got it. He's in charge. We just have to trust his sovereignty. Well, yeah. But it's still hard. And sometimes we can say that in such a churchy, Christian-y way. And then look at verse 15. I mean, Asaph, he's a conflicted man. He wants to abandon ship. He wants to chuck his faith. But then again, you know, he doesn't want his granddaughter to think that he's the kind of person who would do that. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. You see that? So so he realized that there are ramifications to his decisions. And if he goes down, he could pull others down too. And by the time you get to verse 16, the man is just exhausted. He's spent. But when I thought how to understand this It seemed to me a wearisome task. Is is there anybody here that's just tired today? Now, now okay, what's going on here? Let's let's think about what's happening here. Yes, we can identify and feel with his raw honesty and his vulnerability. But what, what is this? Paul David Tripp. Um, is an author and um, a counselor to pastors. He says that Asaph is suffering from a classic case of eternity amnesia. Eternity amnesia. Eternity amnesia afflicts us when we think and speak and act as if God doesn't exist, as if this life is all there is. And all there will be. Eternity amnesia happens when we forget God. When our interpretation of reality excludes the reality of God from the business of life. And eternity amnesia can turn a Christian into a practical atheist. Eternity amnesia will cause me to think that God's goodness is tied to my piece of the good life. It can make me assume that happiness has to do with stuff that's tangible and material and immediate. And and it can make me seek created things over and above the creator. Eternity amnesia. And when that happens, eternity amnesia will cause me to live with unrealistic expectations. I will focus too much on myself. I will insist that others provide the paradise that my heart craves. And when they don't, I will question their loyalty and God's goodness. Eternity amnesia. With it, I will live with greater expectations and fewer appreciations. Eternity amnesia. It will cause me to be more resentful and less grateful. And I will be without hope. Without hope, eternity amnesia. It is a devastating worldview. And it is our culture's current worldview. 
How eternity affects the here and now simply isn't something that our world factors into the business of life. I mean, think about it for just one moment. Where do you read about eternity in the newspapers? Or where do you hear about it in the nightly news? You will never hear Scott Pelley close the CBS News broadcast by saying, now I know that things look bleak, but remember that this world is not all there is. We are all headed for eternity where all that is broken will be finally and forever fixed. This is Scott Pelley, CBS News, good night. You will never hear that. Because our world lives with eternity amnesia. Where's the payoff, Asaph asks. Where's the payoff? It's an honest question. And I'll just argue that the sooner you get honest about asking this question, the better off you'll be as a believer. I would contend that this question is inevitable for those who want to passionately pursue Christ. Think, I mean, think. The more like Christ you are, the more generous you are, the more your faith grows, the more you're connected with the church community, the more you pray and read your Bible, the more you live for God. The more you live for God, the more perplexing it will feel when you experience the splash of this muddy world. This psalm is not for weak thinking. If we want to deal with the real God, prepare to be perplexed. Jesus, he had the purest, most undiluted, undivided, single-minded heart of anyone who ever lived. And the night before he died, he was in utter perplexity. Father, is there any other way? Perplexity and mystery are a part of pursuing God. And could you really respect a God that you could figure out? I would humbly submit that if you've not felt like Asaph, it may be that you're not pursuing Christ with as much passion as you could. So then what snapped him out of his his, uh, coma of discontent? What was it? When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Here it is, verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned. That was the, that, that, verse 17 is the turning point in the psalm. I went to the sanctuary of God. Asaph says, what happened when he got there? Did he hear something? Did he see something? Did he experience something? Was it a prayer? Was it a scripture? Was it a faith story? Was it it that when he arrived in the presence of God, he realized he was surrounded by other believers with the same struggle? That he wasn't alone? Whatever happened, Asaph was jerked out of his anger and envy 
And he remembered God. He remembered who God is, and therefore he remembered who he is and where he came from and where God had brought him. And verse 18, uh, I went into the sanctuary of God. I discerned their end, and then I saw 18, truly you set them in slippery places. So, so Asaph realized, well, I'm not on a slippery slope. They are. They are as secure as walking on ice in leather soles. And in a moment, they're gone. In a moment, they're destroyed. Verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. And he's not taking any joy in that. In fact, he's like, God, that could have been me. That could have been me. And their worldview, their worldview is as stable as a dream. Verse 20, like a dream when one awakens. Now, dreams feel real, don't they? Dreams affect you emotionally. Dreams can affect you physically. Dreams can make you talk in your sleep and laugh in your sleep and weep in your sleep and panic and fear. And dreams feel real, but they're not. And once you wake up, it's over. That's the world, Asaph says. And, 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 and now he just kind of shakes his head in embarrassed disbelief at how he acted. And in verse 22, this is the first time he actually addresses God. And I like how the message puts verse 22, I was totally ignorant, a dumb ox in your very presence. <laughs> verse 23 says, and nevertheless, I'm continually with you. And why? Why is he continually with the Lord? Because you Hold my right hand. And that's why he didn't fall. Actually, he was on the ice too. With leather soles too. But the difference was God's hand. It's not that my cleats were so sharp, but that your hand is so strong. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you receive me to glory. Don't you see? God does not hold a grudge against those who are almost seduced. The evidence that God loves you is that you're still here while you're mad at him. No, no wonder Asaph gets to the better question in verse 25. Good question, honest question, where's the payoff? We need to process through that question so that we can get to the better question of verse 25. The thinking question, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Verse 25 is the last nail in the coffin of Asaph's discontented anger. The reason why I'm angry and embittered is because I desire something more than I desire God. That's why. But in the sanctuary, Asaph discerned. He thought, thinking, God, you are my rock. You are my portion. You are my refuge. I want to be near you. God is good all the time, and I almost missed it 
Verse 28, it is good for me to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. That's his story. And it really needs to be our story too. Church family, set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Uh, Harry Blamiers, Harry Blamiers, an Anglican uh, theologian and professor who was actually a student of C.S. Lewis, um, has written an, an excellent book called The Christian Mind. And in that book, Harry Blamiers says that a supernatural orientation is the hallmark of a Christian mind. He says, when you think about a little girl paralyzed from a car accident, blind, immobile, speechless, you will either see that tragedy as the last word in that poor little girl's knowledge and taste of being, or you will see it as something mysterious to be swept away beyond death to a new, fuller, richer life. If it's the former, you're going to want to tear this universe into pieces. If it's the latter, you'll know that the only thing you can do is pray. You see, the Christian mind discerns that this life is not a destination. This life is preparation for our final destination. Which means that your stuff is not a destination. Your marriage is not a destination. Your children aren't your destination. Your degree is not a destination. Your vocation, not a destination. Your retirement, not a destination. All of these are preparation for your final destination. The best truly is yet to come when God holds your right hand. He's always good all the time, and I don't ever want to miss that. So, so why do I struggle? Why do I doubt God? Why do I think I can't put up with my job or my life or my hardship anymore? Why does every presidential election year tempt me to question the security of the Almighty? It's, it's because my mind is set on what is below and it is seeking things that cannot possibly fulfill the cravings of my heart. Listen, if you are not attaching your identity to the unshakable love of your Savior, you will inevitably ask other things to be your Savior, and that will never happen. But in worship, in community, in the tabernacle, Asaph, awakened from the stupor of his eternity amnesia, and he saw God as his refuge. And what did Asaph actually see? So he, he goes into the tabernacle, but what did he see? I mean, what did he visually see? Well, he would have seen an altar. And on that altar, he would have seen a beast, a lamb, a sacrificial lamb being offered for him. And he's smart enough that he would have thought, I should be on that altar because I'm the one who's been acting beastly. And in the fullness of time, 
God sent his son, Jesus Christ, as the supreme lamb, slain on the altar of the cross for us, slain as a beast so that we would not be slain for our beastliness. I mean, now what else do you want? What else do you want? What more could you want? Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. And the Lamb of God, having died, buried, raised, ascended, and now enthroned on high, Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit upon us so that now we are the sanctuary. We are his tabernacle. Sent back to those very destinations. Why? Verse 28. That I may tell of all your works. There is our purpose. That by our words and by our lives, we may demonstrate what it looks like to be near God and to desire God most. And what does that look like? Some of you know, you're an excellent employee, you walk with God, you desire him most, you demonstrate his love, you do your job, and there is this crazy maker at work, and nothing you do satisfies them, and they find fault with you. They push back at everything you say in a meeting. They find reasons to criticize you. And they recruit others as well. And their negative gossip spreads. And you are made into the personification of everything worthy to be damned. Your crime? You work hard. You're honest. You're an example. You do your job. You represent Jesus well, and they are out to get you. They want you gone. They will probably succeed. And you will probably be crucified. There will probably be a public shaming and a shunning. And if it were another era, it might very well escalate to physical violence. And you're watching all this, and this thought enters your mind. I don't deserve this. And you're right. You don't. You don't. But as time passes... you realize that God is your rock and he is your refuge and he is your strength and you realize that he's the one who's holding your right hand. You wake up every morning and you see that you know, he has not abandoned you and he is faithful. And this clarifies your thinking because now you're discerning that, oh, this is what it means to passionately pursue Christ. Your faith is real. It's, you know, it's not theoretical. It's not on an outline or a PowerPoint now. I mean, it's, it's real. 
And Jesus told you ahead of time this would happen. He told you that he was going to send you out as sheep among wolves. He, he told you that people would kill you thinking that they, was, they were doing God a favor. Jesus told you that, that people close to you would cave to cultural pressure. So he did not recruit you on false premises. He told you ahead of time that this would happen, and now it's happening. And as it's happening, your mind is clear enough to think and see and discern that he is holding you, and his grace is with you, and living for him is the greatest privilege that a human being could ever experience. You are pursuing Christ down a path that has already been stained with his blood. And so now a new thought enters your mind. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this privilege, this privilege of serving Jesus and standing for Jesus and representing Jesus and sacrificing my life for Jesus and knowing Jesus and desiring Jesus. To have anything to do with Jesus is a privilege none of us deserves. So I don't know how it's going to turn out tomorrow. I just know that when Christ is holding my right hand, whatever happens to me is going to end really well. Because God is good all the time. And I don't ever, ever want to miss that. And that, brothers and sisters, is what it means to think.